Father, in the precious holy name of Jesus Christ, we assemble today wanting to bring honor and glory to you. And Lord, we hold in our hands a precious volume of 66 books inspired by our Heavenly Father. And these books tell us one story. A scarlet thread runs through every book about the blood of our Savior who washes away sin. And Lord, as we open up this book today, God, I pray you'd make it live. And if there are specific cases represented today where people need to receive special truth, Lord, revelation that you would give them, Lord, open up your truth and apply it to their lives one by one. May you be glorified today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 4 tells the account of the very first murder in the human, of the human race. And I just want to tell that story to you. We just read it, but let me retell it. Adam and Eve, as a result of their sin, were banished from the Garden of Eden. And now that they were banished from the garden, they started a family. Eve conceived, and eventually she bore a son. She was very excited, wasn't she? She said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And no doubt she was thinking back to an earlier promise that God had made. God had said to the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. And here she has a baby boy, and she's thinking, this is it. This is the seed of myself, the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of that serpent who brought all this misery and sin and heartache into the world. But it wasn't to be. She again conceived and had another son, and this son's name was Abel. And these two boys grew up into manhood, and they were very different from each other. Abel was a keeper of flocks. He was a shepherd. And Cain was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. And in the fullness of time, God required them to come and bring an offering to worship him. And so Cain brought what he had grown himself. He brought some fruits and vegetables. He presented it before the Lord. Abel, on the other hand, brought the firstlings of his flock, the very best of the sheep that he had raised himself. Now, evidently, Cain and Abel's parents had taught them certain things. Adam and Eve had taught their children that God requires a blood sacrifice. They knew that because when they sinned, they tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves, things of their own making, their own works, and God wouldn't accept it. But instead, God slew some innocent animals and covered their nakedness with the skins of these animals, showing to them that innocent blood had to be shed for a guilty person to go free, for a guilty person to have his sins covered. And so Adam and Eve communicated that to their children. Abel believed the word of God through his father Adam. Canaan did not believe the word of God through his father Adam. Abel brought a blood sacrifice, offered it to God in faith. Cain despised the word of the Lord, being a proud man himself, self-sufficient, brought something that he had done, thinking that God would accept the labors of his own works. And we know the story. God had regard 
for Abel's offering, but had no regard for Cain's offering. Probably God showed his approval on Abel's offering by sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, like he does many other times throughout history. Well, there was no fire from heaven to consume the fruits and vegetables that Cain had brought. And immediately Cain was very angry. And the Bible says his countenance fell. That means that he became depressed and bitter and envious of God's approval for his brother. Now God, in grace, came to Cain and he said, Cain, why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, won't your countenance be lifted up? In other words, if you will just do what I've required you to do, if you'll bring a blood sacrifice, and if you'll trust in that sacrifice for the covering of your sin, your countenance will be lifted up as well. But if you won't do well, be warned that sin is like a wild beast. It's crouching and hiding. And its desire is to master you. It wants to destroy you. So be very careful. Well, Cain does not take God's advice. Cain instead talks to his brother and says, let's take a walk in in the fields. I have something I want to talk to you about. And so they go for a walk. And they walk a long ways. They go to where there's no more people around them. Nobody who can see them. Nobody who can hear them. And at the right time, Cain rises up and he strikes down his brother. Perhaps he has some kind of a, a weapon, a knife that he's fashioned just for this purpose. And he strikes him and he strikes him until blood is splattered all over Abel, probably all over Cain, all over the ground. And Cain knows he's got to do something to cover this thing up. And so he... He buries his brother. He tries to wash the blood off of his hands and off of his face and garments. He tries to cover it up. But God comes to Cain and he says, Where is your brother Abel? Well, Lord, how should I know? Am I his babysitter? Why are you asking me? God says, The voice, the, the, the blood of your brother Abel is crying to me from the ground. And God goes on to tell him that because of his crime of murdering his brother, that Cain from henceforth is going to be a homeless wanderer, a fugitive. The earth is no longer going to produce any strength to him. Up till now, he's been able to make a living just gardening, raising crops, feeding himself. He said, that's not going to work anymore. You're not going to have any crops You can't survive on what you can do any longer. And so you're going to have to wander around from place to place, probably sort of like a beggar, asking for charity, doing what he can in this place and that place, wandering around just trying to survive. And Cain at this point is just overcome. He says, Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. He's not repentant. He's not asking for forgiveness. He's not confessing his sin. He just, out of self-pity, he's saying, Lord, you've given me a greater punishment than I can bear. Now, was Cain's punishment greater than he deserved? God should have struck him dead. He should have wiped him off the face of the planet. He, He killed his brother for no other crime than his brother had offered a righteous sacrifice to God. And Cain said, the people that I am among... They're going to hear of what I've done to my brother and they're going to want to kill me. And I can't believe this. God in grace stoops to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do for you, Cain. I'm going to put a mark on you. And people, when they see that mark, are going to know that they better not mess with you because if they do, seven times worse things are going to happen to them. So that's the story of this very first murder in the Bible. 
Interestingly, when we look at Abel and then we compare him to Jesus Christ, we see various parallels. Abel's a type of Christ. A type means uh, one who foreshadows Christ or who pictures him, an illustration of Jesus. As we look at their lives, we see some parallels, don't we? We see that both of them were shepherds. Abel was a shepherd. Well, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Abel brought a lamb as a sacrifice. Well, Jesus offered himself the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We find also that God accepted the sacrifice of Abel. Well, he also accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we know that because he raised him from the dead to prove that he has accepted his sacrifice. Abel was hated by his brother without a cause. Jesus was hated by his brethren, the Jewish nation, without any cause. We find that Abel was delivered up by his brother because of envy. Well, Matthew 27, 18 says the Jews delivered up Jesus because of envy. And Abel suffered a violent death at the hand of his brother. Jesus Christ suffered a violent death at the hand of his brethren. So Abel was intended by God to look forward to and to picture a greater than Abel. And that's why when we go to Hebrews chapter 12, it speaks of the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. This morning, I want to speak to you about the the sprinkled blood and how the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks better than the sprinkled blood of Abel. Abel's blood was sprinkled. Christ's blood was sprinkled. But Jesus' blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. Remember back in Genesis 4 that Abel's blood was crying to God from the ground. It speaks. It prays. It cries out to God for something. Well, Jesus' blood also speaks. It also prays. It also cries out to God for something else. Now, first of all, Jesus' blood speaks a better message than Abel's blood. A better message. When Abel died, just picture him. The corpse on the ground, blood splattered all over that corpse. Probably Cain tried to bury him hurriedly to get rid of the evidence. But as soon as that blood was shed, it started to cry from the ground. And in heaven, the angels heard it. And they said, what's the the sound of that noise? And God says, it's the sound of blood speaking. A man has been slain by his brother. But fast forward 4,000 years or so, and there's another man who dies, another man whose blood is shed, this time on a cross. Jesus, his five wounds are bleeding from his head, his hands, his feet, and his side. And as soon as that holy blood is shed, it starts to speak too. And it speaks to God. And it cries out to God. Now what did the blood of Abel say to God? It said, vengeance. Avenge me, Lord. My blood, or my brother has killed me in cold blood. Lord, justice. So Abel's blood cried out for justice and for vengeance. Revenge me, Lord. But Jesus' blood has a better message, doesn't it? Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for vengeance. It cries out, mercy, pardon, acceptance. Receive them, Lord, because of my blood. Now, we would have thought that 
Jesus' blood would have cried out for vengeance. Here's a holy man, much more holy than Abel was. And if Abel's blood could cry for vengeance, wouldn't Jesus' blood cry for vengeance? But instead, Jesus from the cross says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It just shows forth that this blood that he is shedding is pleading not for vengeance, but for mercy. What a message we have. The blood speaks. The blood speaks mercy. And it's a better, the blood of Christ speaks not only a better message, but for a better period of time. How long did the blood of Abel speak for? It wasn't very long, was it? A day or two, maybe? It spoke as long as it needed to for God to hear and God to respond to that blood speaking to, to bring vengeance, punishment, chastisement upon Cain. The blood spoke, God heard, and God said, from now on you're going to be a homeless wanderer, a vagabond. You're not going to be able to stay here and raise crops. You're going to have to wander throughout the earth. So it spoke for a few days. How long does the blood of Christ speak? For all eternity. Over in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 24, it says, We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks. And that word speaks is in the present tense. That means it's an ongoing, continual reality. When the author of Hebrews wrote his book, the blood had already been speaking 30 or 40 years because that's when the book was written. It's still speaking, he says. And guess what? It ain't going to stop anytime soon. (laughs) That blood will keep on speaking as long as we, his people, keep on sinning, which is for the rest of our life. It'll continue to speak. And that blood will continue to speak as long as there are chosen sinners that need to be saved. And that's until the end of time. And guess what? The blood's going to continue to speak forever, even if we're in heaven. It'll always say, this is the basis for which you are here. It's the blood of the only begotten Son of God. The blood will speak for all time. That's our security. That is our eternal security that we will never be cast out of heaven. Because the blood is there, and the blood speaks. So Christ's blood is better than Abel's blood because it speaks a better message and it speaks for a better period of time and it also speaks for a better number of people. Abel's blood spoke against one person. Cain. Jesus' blood speaks for a great multitude of people. Over in the last book of our Bible. The book of Revelation, we see that in chapter 7. Revelation 7, verse 9. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, we get to see what we're going to be saying in heaven. This is great. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, what are they saying? They're not saying, God, you need to be saved. Salvation to our God. They're saying, 
our salvation is from our God, the one who sits on the throne, and it also is from the Lamb. The Father and the Son, and he could have also included the Spirit, our God in his fullness has provided salvation for us. And who is it for? It's a great multitude that no one could count. Now we are told that the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. So compared to the entirety of the, interior, uh, the human race, there will be few people that enter heaven. But when you add them all up together and you see them all in one place at one time, it's a multitude so great that nobody can count them. I would guess it's in the millions. How many? I don't know. But this is a whole lot of people <laughs> that the blood of Jesus is speaking for. Is he speaking for you? Is his blood speaking for you today? That's the real question. The blood of Christ speaks for a better number of people. Speaks a better message. Speaks for a better period of time. Speaks for a better number of people. It also speaks from a better place. Where did Cain's blood speak from? The ground. It says, the blood of your brother's crying to me from the ground. I want to go back and read that to you. That's Genesis 4.10. God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. The ground had opened its mouth and received Cain's brother's blood from his hand, and that blood was crying to God. Where does the blood of Jesus Christ cry from? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, God told Moses to make the tabernacle on earth to a very specific pattern. Do you know why? Yes, because there, it was, it's like a model. You guys have made model cars or houses or whatever when you're little kids. That model represents something that is real. The tabernacle represented something in heaven that was real. The throne room of God Almighty, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was and God's glory appeared. That was the, the Holy of Holies on earth was only a dim picture of the throne room of God where his glory emanates from. And the Bible says that Jesus, just like the high priest, entered through the Holy of Holies only one time a year on the Day of Atonement, only through the shedding of blood, so too Jesus Christ entered into the very throne room of God. And he says he did it here through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus entered into the throne room of God with his own blood as the evidence that he had successfully completed the mission God sent him on. Here's the blood that did it, Lord. Here it is. God accepted that sacrifice of Jesus Christ 
and he sent forth his Holy Spirit to apply that blood to all his chosen people. But notice, the blood of Cain, or Abel, spoke from the ground. The blood of Jesus speaks from heaven. And not just any place in heaven, from the holy of holies in heaven, from the throne room of heaven, from the very right hand of God Almighty. You see, you've got a glorified man in heaven today, who is also God. 100% God and 100% man. But you have a Jesus Christ in a glorified body, at the right hand of God, in heaven, as a pledge that every one of us, the sons of men, who trust in him, will also come to that same place. Jesus made a promise in the book of Revelation that he who overcomes would sit down with him on his throne, just as he has sat down on his father's throne. You can't get any closer to God than sitting on his throne. That's where Jesus is, and that's where we're going to be. How come? Because of his blood. He entered through blood. He presented blood. And Jesus Christ today is interceding, just as Kelly was talking about earlier as we started the message. He's interceding as a high priest. He's saying, Lord, because of this blood, save your people in the earth. Because of this blood, do not hold this charge against them. And God listens to the pleading blood. The blood speaks. The blood cries. It speaks from the very throne room of God and God listens and God heeds that blood and God applies that blood to his people. So Christ's blood is better than Abel's blood. It's better because it speaks a better message for a better period of time, for a better number of people, and also because it speaks from a better place. But it also is better because it speaks with a better power. A better power. Now Abel's blood did have power. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and God brought vengeance. But Christ's blood also speaks with far greater power than Abel's blood. If Abel's blood could demand vengeance and get it from God, don't you think that the blood of Christ is actually going to accomplish what it cries for? Sure is. Now why would Christ's blood speak with more power than Abel's blood? Let's just think about that for a minute. It speaks with more power because the blood that's speaking is the blood of God. Abel was a man. He was a good man. The Bible says in Hebrews 11:4 that he was counted righteous. He was justified. He was a saint. He was innocent of any crimes. He suffered for righteousness. He was a man of faith. And his faith produced works. So here you have a genuine saint, a genuine child of God, but that's all he was. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is the only begotten Son of God, who has no beginning and no end, who is the creator of all things. There's no comparison between Abel and Jesus Christ. If Abel's blood could speak and God would answer, certainly the moans and the groans and the shrieks and the tears and the cries of Jesus Christ are not going to go unheeded. It's the very blood of God. In fact, Paul, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It's God's blood because Jesus is God. So that's why the blood of Christ speaks with greater power. 
But how does it speak with greater power? Well, first of all, it speaks with greater power because it removes the punishment of God. Abel's blood brought punishment on Cain. Jesus' blood removes punishment from us. You see, God cannot just sweep our sins under the rug and sort of pretend they've never happened. Just ignore them. God is holy and just. And because he's holy, he hates sin. Because he's just, he has to punish it. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a just judge. He must punish sin. That's part of his essential nature. And so God must punish sin. There's two places that God punishes sin. Hell and the cross. And there's only two. Either Jesus pays for your sin and removes your punishment at the cross, or you must bear that punishment in hell for all eternity. And actually there is... uh, The justice of God is seen so powerfully in the cross... Because when you look at hell, you find that people are paying for their sins. But it's never actually paid, is it? If it was, they would be released at some point. But they keep paying for it forever and ever. And it goes on and on and it never ends because they are never able to fully pay the punishment for their sins. But Jesus, in a day, through his sufferings and his death, fully puts away all of the punishment that we deserved. And he can say, it is finished. The price has been paid. It's over. It's done. So how is Jesus' blood speaking better and more powerfully than Abel's? He's doing it because he's removing punishment, which Abel's blood could never do. And secondly, because he removes the curse. Abel's blood brought a curse. Did you remember hearing that read this morning? In Genesis 4.11, God says, Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Abel or Cain, you are cursed. On the other hand, Jesus' blood doesn't bring a curse. It removes the curse that all of us are born under. Did you know that you were born under a curse? It's the curse of a broken law. Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything that is written in the book of the law to perform it. Have you abide by everything in God's law and have you always performed it at all times? I haven't. I don't know any person who ever has saved Jesus Christ. If we haven't done that, we're under a curse, the curse of a broken law. But the Bible says three verses later, Christ redeemed us from the curse, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross and hung on that tree, he was taking the curse of a broken law on himself in order to release you from that curse. And that's why in the new heavens and the new earth, it says, and there shall no longer be any curse. In that new earth, there's no curse. There's no curse of a broken law. There's only blessing. So Jesus' blood speaks with more power. How? By removing punishment, by removing the curse. 
it also speaks with more power because it removes our banishment. The blood of Abel caused Cain to be banished, to wander as a fugitive throughout the earth. But the blood of Jesus Christ does the opposite. It, instead of causing us to be banished from Him, it brings us into His presence. Do you remember Matthew 25? Jesus comes back to the earth when the King comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Then He's going to sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before Him and He's going to separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and the sheep He'll put in His right hand and the goats on His left. He's going to say to some people, Depart, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart. Be banished. But he is also going to say to the other ones, the sheep, come. Not depart. Come. Not accursed ones, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So instead of banishment, there's welcome. There's, come unto Jesus Christ, welcome unto Him. That's why it says in the book of Revelation chapter 22 that blessed are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have the right to enter the gates into the city. Instead of being banished from the city, they have the right to enter into the city. So the blood of Jesus is speaking, and it's speaking, come and welcome. Your punishment is gone. You're welcome to come. The curse has been removed. And finally, the blood of Jesus speaks better than the blood of Abel because it removes not only banishment, not only punishment, not only the curse, but it also removes wrath. Abel's blood brought the wrath of man on Cain. That's why he's so afraid that someone's going to kill him. When people find out that he's a murderer, he's afraid they're going to kill him. So he's afraid of their wrath. Jesus' blood removes not the wrath of man, but the wrath of Almighty God from us. Did you know that people born into this world are born under the wrath of God? Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that we were by nature children of wrath, even as everybody else. In John 3.36, the Bible says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He's not saying that the wrath of God is going to come upon you when you die. It's already on you and it's going to stay on you. And the only way to get released from underneath it is to believe on the Son, to obey the Son. Over in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, Having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So the blood is speaking. Father, take the curse away from this one. Father, remove the punishment from this one. Father, remove your wrath from this one. And God hears the blood, and God heeds the blood, and God provides blessing, doesn't He? Instead of wrath, he gives life. Instead of punishment, release. Instead of condemnation, acceptance. Instead of justice, he gives mercy. So the blood speaks. 
and speaks and speaks. Now, there's really only two kinds of people in this world. One day, every one of the human race is going to stand before God on Judgment Day. And on that day, the blood of Jesus is either going to speak for you or against you. For you or against you. Who's it going to speak for? I want you to look over in Hebrews 12, because we're told there. Hebrews 12, 24 says that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You have come, he says, to the sprinkled blood. That's who the blood speaks for, those who come to it. If you don't come to the sprinkled blood, it doesn't speak for you. It speaks against you. And notice you come not to shed blood, you come to the sprinkled blood. There is a difference between the blood of Christ being shed and the blood of Christ being sprinkled, right? One is an atonement made for sin. Another is the application of that atonement made to your life. Sprinkled blood speaks of applying the blood through faith to your guilty soul. Just because Jesus died on a cross doesn't mean that you're going to enter heaven. You've got to sprinkle the blood on your soul. He goes, well, how do I do that? Well, go back with me in to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus chapter 12, where the angel of death was coming to smite the firstborn of every child. God said you have to take a bunch of hyssop, which is just a bush, take a branch from that bush, put it in a basin of blood, and sprinkle it on the doorpost on the lintel of your home, and then enter that doorway. And when the angel of death passes over, when he sees that sprinkled blood, he's going to pass over. He won't bring his wrath to bear and smite the firstborn. Well, we've got to take our faith. Our faith is like that bunch of hyssop, and we've got to dip it in the blood and sprinkle ourselves, apply it to ourselves through faith. There's also another example in Exodus chapter 24, where Moses is bringing the people of Israel into a covenant relationship with God, the old covenant. And I don't know if you remember this story, but Moses does basically the same thing. He takes a bunch of hyssop, he puts it in a basin of blood, and he first he sprinkles the altar with it, and then he sprinkles the book of the law and the people. And do you know what he's doing? Yeah, he's, he's bringing these two parties into a covenant relationship. The altar stands for God. He sprinkles the blood on the altar, so God is involved in this covenant. Then he sprinkles the people, and he sprinkles the book, because the book are the, uh, what would you call it, the rules or the laws of this covenant that they must obey. So here God and the people of Israel enter into covenant, and the blood seals them into this covenant relationship. We're not under the old covenant anymore. But there has come a new covenant. And that new covenant is entered through the sprinkling of the blood. Peter talks about this over in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to read this to you. 1 Peter 1 verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. So who is Peter writing to? 
He's writing to people who are chosen by God the Father, sanctified by God the Holy Spirit, and sprinkled with the blood of God the Son. Now, how were his readers sprinkled with blood? Well, it's simply talking about the fact that they obeyed Jesus Christ to be sprinkled with his blood. How do you obey the gospel? By faith. You believe it. You trust it. You stop leaning and trusting in any works of your own, and you start trusting wholly and completely in what Christ has done for you. And when you do that, the blood is sprinkled on your soul. Think back with me to Cain. As he's taking that knife in his hand and plunging it into the, the heart of his brother, don't you know that blood is splattering everywhere? And when he's done, he's looking at himself and he's horrified to see all this blood all over him. That would have been a horror to Cain, but when we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, it's glory to us. <laughs> it's not horrifying. That's our only basis for peace and acceptance with God is the sprinkled blood of Jesus applied to our soul. So I want to ask you, has that blood covered your soul? Have you come to it and have you sprinkled it on yourself through faith? Have you applied it Yes, I trust it for myself, not for anybody else. You know, our children can be raised thinking that they're Christians because they grow up in a Christian home, but they've got to come to the place where they take the hyssop and they sprinkle the blood for themselves, on themselves. They're not trusting in mom or dad. They're trusting in Jesus now. So who will the blood speak for? It's going to speak for those who come to it and those who have it sprinkled on them. And you know what? It's not just going to speak for them one day in heaven. It's already sprinkling for you right now. Every time you sin, the blood speaks for you. Isn't that good news? <laughs> Thank God there is the blood crying out for you in heaven from the right hand of God, the throne room, saying, forgive them again, Lord. Yes, forgive them for that. Have mercy on them for that. The blood just keeps on speaking, keeps on speaking. Now, who will the blood speak against on Judgment Day? Who's it going to speak against? Go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26. I don't think I gave all of all of this. We'll start in Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here it comes. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Here there is a much severer punishment awaiting certain people, and they are the people who trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God. So how, how would we call these people? These people have rejected the blood. They've trampled it underfoot. They know about it. They may have even said they believed in it at one time, but then they go back to their wicked ways, like a sow returning to uh, the mire and as a dog returning to its vomit. Someone who said they believed in Jesus Christ and trusted in the blood and then go back to the world and the ways of the world. They've rejected it. 
They've treated it as common, unclean, profane. It's nothing special. So the person who rejects the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood will speak against him one day. But not only for the person who rejects him, but for the person even who neglects him. Look over at Hebrews 2.3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see, you don't even have to reject the blood of Jesus. You just have to neglect it. So what does it mean to neglect something? You just don't do anything, right? You just sort of ignore it. You just pass on by. It's not that you're doing anything against Jesus. You're just doing nothing with Jesus. You just neglect him day after day. You love the world and the things of the world more than Jesus. He never becomes your God. Instead, you bow down and have other gods before him. So the blood that speaks so powerfully will speak against people who have either rejected or neglected him. So where do you stand this morning? Have you come to the blood? Have you sprinkled the blood? Are you trusting in the blood? Then you're safe. Not even for now, but for all eternity. But if you are neglecting or rejecting that blood, my friends, watch out. Beware. Be warned. There is a great, severe punishment. We can hardly describe it. How shall we escape, he says, if we neglect so great a salvation? In the book of Revelation, people say, Mountains, fall on us. Rocks, crush us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb who is coming. You know, we talk about Jesus meek and mild, patting children on the head, The Jesus that's coming back is not that Jesus. It's Jesus, a conqueror, a king. And people are going to be scared out of their wits. They're going to wish that there is some place that they can hide. And in fact, they can't. In Revelation chapter 20, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the great and the small standing before that throne. No place will be found for anybody. You can't hide. You, you, the mountains aren't going to fall on you. They're not going to hide you. You must stand before this God that you have spurned or neglected or rejected for your entire life. And he comes and he says, this blood, you shed that blood. Well, I didn't do it, Lord. The Jews did it. The Jews say, no, we didn't do it. The Romans did it. God says, every individual who has ever sinned is responsible for the blood of my son because he died because you're a sinner. And so it's time for all of us to make sure the blood's sprinkled on our soul. And it's high time we go to every person that we can and tell them about the sprinkled blood that they can have mercy if they'll come and if they'll sprinkle it on their soul through faith. So let's do that. And let's bring God glory in that. Amen. Father, we pray that we would revel in that blood that you shed for our souls. If there's anybody here who has never come and trusted completely in the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, cause them to do it right now. Give them grace to come. Give them grace to apply faith to the blood that was shed there at Calvary's cross. And Lord, we pray that we would just so be so filled with hope and so encouraged 
that our forerunner is sitting at the right hand of God and he has entered into that holy place through his own blood and he has already obtained eternal redemption. It's a done deal. We are secure in him forever because of what he has accomplished for us. Lord, we bow in our hearts and just worship you for that. Receive our praise and our worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.